So help us be attentive right now to the things that you want to show us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we began to look at Jeremiah last time. And Jeremiah would come on a scene about 60 years after the ministry of Isaiah. Isaiah would be, it is believed by historians, that he was sawn in half by Manasseh when he was the king of Judah. Manasseh was one of the worst kings or the worst king of Judah. He reigned longer than any other king, 55 years. He plunged the nation deep into idol worship and occultic kinds of practices to where even we know that it was um, the people were bringing uh, their babies to be sacrificed on the arms of Moloch there in the Gehenna Valley just south of the temple. And so in between Isaiah's ministry and 60 years later, Jeremiah, that would come on the scene when Josiah, that is the son of Manasseh, was ruling. As I mentioned to you, Josiah, as you read Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, he was the last of the good kings. And uh, it was in uh, the ripe old age of eight years old when Josiah came on the throne. It was in his 12th year, as you read those chapters of Second Kings 22 and, and Second Chronicles 34, that he would begin to uh, give the orders and bring reforms to the land. He gave the order to clean the temple out because Manasseh had trashed out the temple, had closed it off, put idols all in there. So they're cleaning it up, and all of a sudden, in the corner somewhere, they find the book of the law. And they blow the dust off of it. Helkiah, the priest, comes and reads it to Josiah. And Josiah, as he hears the words of the Lord, the book of the law, he tears his clothes because his heart was quickened by it. And he says, we have sinned against the Lord. So he begins reforms in the land. He brings back the Levites. He brings back temple worship. He celebrates the Passover, a lot of good things. But what was taking place during that time when Jeremiah starts his ministry during the reign of Josiah, his ministry would last for about 50 years till after the destruction of Jerusalem, that it was reforms for the most part. It wasn't really revival in the hearts of the people. And we're going to see that as we go through here, uh, this section of Jeremiah through all the book of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And the reason that he's called the weeping prophet is because he has a message from God that is a difficult message, a message of judgment, and, and he weeps. He's seeing a nation that's about ready to die. And so we're going to see that as we continue on. And he begins during that time, right before the reform start, and continues that message even during the time when Josiah is bringing up temple worship and, and a lot of good activity that's happening. But the hearts of the people weren't really touched because we know that as soon as Josiah was killed in the Megiddo Valley by the king of, of Egypt, that they went right back into idol worship and, and to idolatry. So we see that it is difficult times, and we pick it up. Jeremiah Young was called by the Lord. Let me read to you as we read in verse 5 of chapter 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Now we know that Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah. He came from a priestly family, but God has called him to be a prophet. 
called him. He says, I formed you in, in your mother's womb. I, I knew you before you were born. I, I made you. I fashioned you. And I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. So the Lord had a plan for Jeremiah even before he was born. Paul the Apostle talks about that in Galatians chapter 1, that God had ordained me to be a minister of the gospel uh, before I was born. And it's wonderful. God has a plan for you. And, and he chose you before the foundations of the world. And you were created for his good pleasures, as Revelation chapter 4 says. So remember that, that he desires to use you in a wonderful way. And here he says that I can't because I'm a youth. I can't go. I can't speak. I'm, I'm youth. And uh, how am I going to be able to go? No one's going to listen to me. Sometimes when the Lord puts something on our heart, we will come up with excuses. Now, what was Moses' excuse when the Lord spoke to him from the burning bush? Moses, go. I've cho chosen you to go free the children of Israel uh, from Egypt. He said, I can't speak. I'm slow of speech. Here is, you know, Jeremiah that's saying, I'm a youth. And sometimes when we realize our inefficiencies and our weaknesses and our struggles, it's in our weaknesses that he uses us. And I am so thankful for that because he does use the weak things of the world to put down the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the things that are not to bring the not, the things that are that no man will glory in his presence. And I love it that the Lord desires to use ordinary people like you and me. And even in our weaknesses and in our struggles and shortcomings and slow of speech and in our youth or uh, in our elderly age, whatever the case may be. So I want to encourage you as the Lord is prompting you and leading you, he will gift you and whatever he has for you and he will enable you. So all those things that we talked about. And so he begins to give this message. He, he says to Jeremiah that I have put my words in your mouth and, and, I, and I'm going to speak uh, through you, Jeremiah. And we're going to pick it up now at verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot that is facing away from the north. So an almond tree was, uh, it's interesting, the time before this last trip that we took uh, to Israel, we actually went at the end of February in the beginning of March. And one of the things that really stood out, it was uh, the almond trees that were all in bud. And so they had all these orchards uh, of almond trees that were white blossoms, and they were very, very beautiful. They were the first of the trees to blossom and produce fruit, of all the fruit trees. And when you saw it, you recognized that spring was coming. Just as we saw it at the beginning of March, uh, the people of Israel would say, look at the almond trees. They're the white, beautiful uh, blossoms that are there. Spring is coming. And, and God is saying through Jeremiah's message that when you see these things, know that God's judgment is coming. And God's word will come to pass. You might recall that Isaiah was told early in his ministry in chapter 2 that Isaiah, here are the visions that will come to pass. Not that they might come to pass, uh, 
or it's a possibility. But Jeremiah, these things are going to come to pass. And we know that Jesus would say concerning the last days and pointing to his return and speaking of his return, that when you see these things begin to come to pass, look up and rejoice for your redemption draws near. And he would speak about the signs that point to the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming. He would talk about the tribulation. He would talk about the labor pains. And you and I, we are to pay attention knowing that even as Jesus said that in Luke's gospel, that when you see all the trees begin to bud, you know that summer is near. And we know that as we are seeing the events that are around us that are taking place, that are being fulfilled, Israel being a nation once again, and other things that we talked about quite extensively in our Revelation study, we know that the Lord is coming back very soon. So we are to pay attention. We are to know that the prophetic scene that is yet to be fulfilled, it will come to pass. Not that it might, it will. And we have that assurance and we have the confidence that it will come to pass. And as he continues, verse 13, he says, you know, God's wrath is coming. It's going to be like a boiling pot and and it's facing away from the north. Verse 14, the Lord said to me, out of the north, calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come and each set his throne uh, at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness. Because they have forsaken me, burn incense to other gods, and worship the works of their own hands. So the boiling pot, God's wrath is coming. Now you remember in Isaiah that Isaiah would have a similar message to the house, the ten northern tribes of Israel before they were taken off into captivity in 722 B.C. And then he had a message to Judah. And he warned them, even as we're going to see Jeremiah warned them, hey, you need to learn from what happened to Israel. They went off into captivity because of their disobedience in idol worship. And Judah here is getting the same message from Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, as I said, comes on the scene about 60 years after Isaiah. In those 60 years, we know that Assyria and Egypt and Babylon are all trying to become the world-dominating you know, empire. Uh, the Assyrians at the time that uh, Isaiah was on the scene was the world leader, the world uh, dominating empire, they were mean. They were conquering that, that the whole area of the Middle East and, and came and took the ten northern tribes off into captivity. They come into Judah during the days of Hezekiah. And you recall, as we read in the book of Isaiah, that it was during the reign of Hezekiah that the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem. Shennacherib is hurling his threats against Jerusalem. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. And then one night, as God intervenes, he sends an angel that kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night and delivers Jerusalem. Absolutely amazing. So the Assyrians at that point began to decline in power. 
We know that Egypt is trying to rise up to power, and the Babylonians eventually would rise to power, defeating the Egyptians, and then they would come along and take Judah off into captivity beginning in 605 B.C. But during this time that Jeremiah first comes on the scene, that once again we see that Judah is looking to Egypt to align with them. Matter of fact, we will see that that remnant that's left in Jerusalem after the destruction of Jerusalem, they go to Egypt to try to find safety when the Lord said, don't do that because you're going to end up being destroyed. Don't go back to Egypt. It's all in vain. And you remember that Isaiah, when he was speaking to the children of Israel, he said, Woe to the rebellious children of Israel, Isaiah chapter 30, for you seek counsel, but you don't seek counsel of me. And you're turning to Egypt, Egypt a picture of the world. And know that those Arabian horses are not going to help you. The counsel of the pharaohs and the kings of Egypt, they're not going to help you. It's all in vain. So he's calling them to turn to him to wait on him and returning to me will be your strength and those who wait on the Lord he'll be good to and then you're going to hear from me and that is so true for you and for me you see oftentimes and I think it's happening more in the church very subtly even that we are looking to the world's philosophy and ways we go to Egypt and the Lord is saying that hey whoa you take counsel, but not of me. You're taking counsel of that which is directly against my word. And I want you to come to me and to wait on me. And you're going to hear from me. And you see that all in Isaiah chapter 30. We've talked about that quite extensively again as we went through that chapter. I want to encourage you to read it. And to know that the Lord desires to speak to us and to work on our behalf. God was going to use the nations to bring judgment to his people that had done wickedly. And in this case, it's going to be the Babylonians. And Judah tried to turn to Egypt for help once again, but it was futile because they fell to the Babylonians. Uh, Egypt did. God had delivered Jerusalem in the past. And we're going to see as we go through Jeremiah, there's going to be an Ezekiel as well. Those false prophets that were on the scene saying, hey, nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem. We got the temple, man. The temple, the temple, the temple. So they were trusting in other things rather than the Lord. Kind of like what we see in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, at the end of the days of the judges, when the children of Israel, that they were defeated by the Philistines, and somebody said, hey, let's go to Shiloh, let's take out the Ark of the Covenant, and let's go get it, and it will deliver us. Kind of like the temple, it will deliver us. The Ark of the Covenant, it will deliver us. Well, the Philistines ended up capturing the Ark of the Covenant. It's a lesson we don't have time to go into tonight. Sometimes we reduce God to an it or a program or a procedure rather than the person of Jesus Christ as we have a personal relationship with him and trusting in him and looking to him and standing on his promises and knowing that he's almighty God. We need to go to him because he wants to work exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. It's going to spill over into judgment. The Babylonians are going to be like a boiling pot 
In verse 17, therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and a bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes and its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So behold, Jeremiah, speak my word. Again, a familiar theme that we're going to see throughout the book of Jeremiah. It was a familiar theme, should register with you if you've been with us in our study of 1 Timothy, right? You see, in First and Second Timothy, there's about 25 references that Paul makes to Timothy to continue in sound doctrine, continue in the gospel, continue in truth. Timothy, you need to do this. Give attention to exhortation, to reading, to doctrine. And we saw that uh, emphasis very clearly, and we we're going to continue to. You are to teach. You are to live. Stand on the truth. And he's, Jeremiah is being told the same thing. And there are going to be those who are going to come against you, Timothy, as you deal with those who teach fables and myths and the legalists and the prosperity teachers. And I think that's why on Sunday when we talk about Timothy being encouraged once again, Timothy, you know, stir up the gift that is in you. Timothy, perhaps a little bit timid because he has a daunting task of pastoring this church that he has to deal with a lot of problems that are there and false doctrine has come into the church. And it's, you know, not only inside the church, you know, the problems, but outside the church with persecution that was taking place. We live in a day and age, don't we? That as you make the decision that I'm going to stand for the truth of God's word, it's becoming more difficult, isn't it? And I think that we as Christians, that we need to really make the decision that we're going to stand for truth and to understand that the world is not going to applaud us, that the world's going to come against us. And as we trust in the Lord, he's with us. He hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and sound and, you know, uh, power and love and sound mind. And we'll talk about that more extensively on Sunday. But we are living in a day and age where people are telling us not to speak truth. And the Lord says that I'll be with you, Jeremiah, and he's going to be with you and me as well. He's going to be with this church. And I hope and we, I pray that we here, that we would make that decision that, Lord, we're going to stand on your word. And we're not going to be ashamed of the gospel. Amen. Because it's the only hope that it is for people is the gospel. And that we would share in love. And that we would share God's hope and truth. His love and compassion. And that we wouldn't be afraid to do that. To know that he's with us. So as we move into chapter 2, this chapter the prophet's going to paint 10 pictures that will expose the sins of the people. As we read in verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Verse 3, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase, 
All that devour him was, will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. And hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. And thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, have become idolaters. Neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness and through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and a shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. In verse 7, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruits and its goodness. And when you enter, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walk after things that do not profit. So Jeremiah is given a picture, first of all, as Israel, God's people being an unfaithful wife. When the Lord gave the Israelites his covenant there on Mount Sinai, he entered into a loving relationship with them that is compared to a marriage. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32, God says, they've broken my covenant, though I was a husband to them. They had committed spiritual idolatry. Here, Jeremiah tells the people they've played the harlot. And God is grieving because there was a time where they loved the Lord. They were separated unto the Lord. You know, he says that in this, that there was a time that you were holiness unto the Lord, is what he says. But they've abandoned the true God for man-made gods, gods that weren't real. May we be devoted to the Lord and not to the things of the world. And God was asking them, what have I done? How did I fail you? I brought you through this wilderness of pits, and it was dry, and it was barren, and it was hot, and I brought you into land that is flowing with milk and honey, that is a good land. You ate of its fruits, its goodness. And when you came in, you ended up defiling my land. How did I fail you? You no longer are seeking me, no longer turning to me. And you don't even remember what the Lord has done for you. What I've done for you is what he's saying to his people. Don't you remember how I brought you out of Egypt through the wilderness into this land? Because I was faithful. My word was true to you. Listen, it is very, very important for us to remember what the Lord has done for us. You know, after Joshua, you know, Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, he stands before the people. Joshua is the book of victory, isn't it? And he stands before the people and he says, okay, as he knew that they were starting to bring out the idols, he said, you know, you got to make a decision. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And then you go into the book of Judges, which is a book of defeat, uh, a book book of bondage and it tells us in chapter 2 when you begin that chapter that that generation after Joshua forgot the Lord and the works of the Lord one generation after Joshua one generation after 40 years in the wilderness coming into the land and being outnumbered by the Canaanite tribes they had victory and yet they forgot the works of the Lord don't forget the works of the Lord. One of the reasons why we do communion, you know, Jesus said, do this often in, in remembrance of me, 
is because we want to remember what Jesus has done for us and allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. But remember what he has done for you in saving you and forgiving you and, and uh, bring you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't forget that. And I think that we are to be ones that not only remember, but to be thankful. And that's a good thing to be reminded of in this season of Thanksgiving. And you might be sitting there going, I don't have a whole lot to be thankful for. If you have Jesus and your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life, you have something to be thankful for. You are a blessed individual. And I'm not trying to dismiss or diminish the difficulty you're going through or the loss or the pain or whatever it might be, but you have Jesus. And remember what he has done for you and the hope that he's given to you. And we don't ever want to, to go through life where we forget what he's done for us. And the leaders had turned away from the Lord because of that. So you're like an unfaithful wife. And then in verse 9, Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against the children's children I will bring charges. And for pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently. And see if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils, for they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So secondly, you're like a broken cistern. He says, look to the east and to the west. Have those nations changed their gods? He says, no, but you have. You've changed, and you've forsaken the true and the living God to gods that aren't real. And he likens it to abandoning a spring of fresh flowing water uh, that you are to take in. Oh, come, you who are thirsty, drink, Isaiah said. Drink of the waters freely. And what you have done is you've hewn out for yourself cisterns that can't even hold water. And you have been foolish. We can do the same thing. Jesus invites us to come and eat and drink of him. He's talking about intimate fellowship. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst. I have living waters to give, he would say to that woman of Samaria when they're at Jacob's well. And he would say, if you drink of this water here, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the living waters that I have to give, you'll never thirst. So the question for all of us here tonight is what are you drinking from? And where are you drinking from? Are you hewing out for yourself cisterns, trying to do it in your own way, and I'm going to dig this thing out, and I'm going to do it my way, and you put a lot of energy and effort into it, and you put water into it, and it's muddy, and it's water that will not refresh you, and it won't even hold that water. It's broken. But are you going to come to the living waters that Jesus has to give to you? And on the last day of the feast in John chapter 7, he would stand there and he would cry out, any of you that thirst, let him come and drink of me. And out of his innermost will flow torrents of living water. 
And I hope and I pray that for all of us that we would just keep drinking of him and eating of him. You know, people said, what are you talking about? He's talking about relationship. I'm the bread that came from heaven. He has living water to give. And whenever your body is thirsty, what do you drink? You drink water, don't you? Or something that's refreshing. And I think the most refreshing thing we can drink is water. We don't go outside and put a bunch of dirt in our mouth and think that's refreshing. Well, spiritually, when you thirst and you hunger and you're wondering and you feel dry, where are you going to go to drink? Are you going to drink from the cisterns that you've dug and trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment in life? Are you going to drink from the living waters that the Lord has to give to you? And here he's saying, you, you've turned to other gods. The other nations didn't do that. And you've turned to gods that aren't even real. You've dug your own cisterns. And it's cisterns that ends up all cracked and broken and muddy. And then in verse 14, is Israel servant? Is he home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. And they made his uh, land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the people Nof and Tephanus have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now why take the road to Egypt? That is back to the world and drink of the waters of Sihor. And why take the road to Assyria and drink of the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken Forsaken me, the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. So now you're enslaved. God redeemed the Jews out of Egypt and gave them the promised land, and now they're going back to it. Going back and trusting in Egypt, looking for advice from Egypt, and they end up in bondage because of their idolatry. They were in bondage because their trust was in other nations and those gods, not in the Lord. And they were being plundered and enslaved, and they were at the mercy of the other nations. Your own wickedness will correct you backsliding rebuke you there's there's consequences to this and then as we continue in verse 20 for of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds and you said I will not transgress Uh, and um, when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing a harlot now he says you're like a stubborn animal and a harlot and then he mentions every high hill and under every green tree. And I believe that he's speaking about those places of idol worship. When the children of Israel were to go into the promised land, listen, the Lord said, just don't go and worship anywhere. Don't go and worship at those places that the Canaanites have set up to worship in the, in the wooden groves and in, in the high places. That's what they're called in the Old Testament. Do away with those things. Well, they didn't. So when they went into idol worship, what happened is they went to those high places in those wooden groves and they committed all kinds of paganism and idolatry and great immorality that took place. And here he's saying, you played the harlot. You went to every high hill and under every great tree. You lay down playing the harlot. You went back to those places. Now here's the thing, because there's a very important lesson for us to consider. The implication here so that we can make application for today. It's interesting. In the house of Judah, some of the kings were good kings. 
And the ones who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, some of those good kings got rid of the high places. They got rid of the wooden groves. They just did away with them, the false altars. But some of the kings that did right in the sight of the Lord did not do that. Second Chronicles 24, you can read it. Second Kings chapter 12. Joash, seven years old when he became the king of Judah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And here's something interesting that you'll read. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jeho- uh, Jehoiada the priest. He did not get rid of the high places and the wooden groves, Second Kings tells us. So he begins to do work on the, on the temple. He did some good things. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord as long as the high priest Jehoiada was there to influence him, minister to him. When Jehoiada died at 130 years of age, you know what happened? Joash and the leaders begin to fall right back into idol worship. They went to those high places. They went to those wooden groves. And they fell right back into idol worship and committing all kinds of sin and immorality. So there's a couple things in that. Number one is every single one of us have got to make our faith our own. You see, Joash was fine as long as Jehoiada was there to minister to him. But when Jehoiada died, as soon as he did, Joash and the leaders fell right back into apostasy. They fell right back into idol worship. You see, you can't just rely on the faith of your parents. You cannot rely on the faith of your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever it might be. You have to come to genuine faith. And you see, Paul's going to speak to Timothy. Timothy, you came to genuine faith by the ministering of your mother and grandmother. It wasn't based just on them. They, they taught you the scriptures that would teach you salvation, bring you to salvation, but your faith is genuine. So the question is, as we grow up and our children grow up, is their faith genuine? And parents, speak to your kids about that. Speak to your grandkids about that. Speak to your spouse about that. Speak to whoever it might be, a friend, because they're going to have to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And Joash didn't do that. Second of all, he left those places of temptation. Listen. They left the places of temptation to where as soon as, you know, the spiritual covering was gone, they went right back to idol worship. So the question, honestly, tonight, and we're going to end here tonight, and we're going to go to the Lord. But are there high places and wooden groves that you've left in your life? Are there places of temptation that you have? Are there places that you kind of hang out in that you shouldn't be hanging out because it causes you to carnal out or sin? Things that you watch, things that you pull up on the computer, and you say, I'm cool for a while, but you still got those things that are in place. You haven't really got rid of them. You haven't dealt with it. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Now, he's not talking about literally bodily mutilation, please. He's talking about if there are things in your life that cause you to sin, then deal with it radically. So the question tonight, are those areas of temptation in your life that you haven't dealt with to get rid of it? 
the wooden groves, the high places that you can go back to and sin against the Lord. To be carnal, to, to cause you to be disobedient to the Lord. And I think you know what I'm talking about. If there are things in your life, high places and wooden groves, get rid of them. Because they will do you in and they will wipe you out. And as you read about Joash, his life, he ended in a very terrible, terrible way. You know, it's unfortunate some of the good kings of, of Judah, like Asa, you know, they followed the Lord. But then all of a sudden, in their pride, they got disobedient. And, you know, Asa, he began to persecute the prophets when the prophet came to him and said, Asa, why didn't you trust in the Lord? You have done foolishly. After 35 years of following after the Lord and trusting him, he became prideful and, and he began to do his own thing, come up with his own plan. And it was the prophet that said, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro across the whole earth, Asa, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. And what I hope and pray is that our hearts would be loyal towards the Lord. So the question is this, are there high places are there wooden groves in your lives? Get rid of them. Deal with it. Those places of temptation. That's a word for every single one of us because they're all around. And have a loyal heart towards the Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word that is given to us. And, oh, Lord, um, I think that we need to consider these things. Lord, we don't want those things in our lives that cause us to fall into temptation, but to have a heart that is loyal towards you. And Father, I pray that no one here would be trusting in their parents' faith or their friends, or, but it would be a genuine faith that you have come to. So I want to pray for a couple things here tonight. First of all, I want to pray for if there's anyone here that you've never come to Jesus Christ. You've never made a decision for him. That Jesus Christ came to die for your sins and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. And the greatest need of any man or any woman is to repent, turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Because our sin has separated us from God. And the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ came to give you life. He died on the cross for you in place of you. Took the judgment for you. Bore your sins upon himself. And he cried, it is finished. I paid the price. I did the work. He was put into a grave. He rose again. He validated that he's the son of God. And so he is your forgiveness. He is your provision of eternal life and brings you in the right relationship with the Father. No one else, nothing else. But I also, I want to include that. If you're here and perhaps that you've relied on your parents' faith or your friends, and now it's time to make a decision for you to have genuine faith for you to make that decision because you will stand alone before God. Your parents won't be there. 
Your friends won't be there to speak on your behalf. The church, the pastor, your goodness is what have you done with Jesus Christ? What decision have you made? Have you truly surrendered to him? Really in the honesty of your heart. I pray that you would say, I'm coming to genuine faith. If that means anything to anyone here this, tonight. I'm making a decision myself for Jesus. So anyone who desires to do that or come to faith to the cross for salvation and forgiveness, you can pray right where you are that Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I'm making a decision for you. Forgive me. I believe you died on that cross for me. You rose again. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior, that this is my gospel. And I want to personally know you and walk with you and be loyal to you, Lord, because I know the world will just hold me in bondage. I thank you for bringing me into the family of God in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, listen, we want to pray with you. We want to minister to you. So we got a prayer team up front here. You can talk to me after the service. I'm always the last one to leave. Tell me that you made that decision. But Lord, I also just want to pray for us that we would be ones, that we would always remember what you have done for us, that we wouldn't be drinking from the water of the world, but from the living waters. And we would not forsake you and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us daily. I thank you that we have eternal life. And Lord, I thank you that we have a living hope. And I thank you that you promise you'll never leave us or forsake us. So help us, Lord, in the world in which we're living in, to stand on truth, to give truth. And Lord, to trust your word, knowing that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he? Hey, next Wednesday.